You are tuned in to NYC Radio Live. David Ellen Bogan here. Great to be with you. You are in for a treat. This is a nice, intimate hang at the home of Andy Statman, a really important, wonderful musician who's known for his work as a virtuosic mandolin player, working with folks like Bela Fleck, Vassar Clemens. Uh, at times, we hear he did some stuff with Jerry Garcia and Bob Dylan, Dave Bromberg. So he's got that going for him. <laughs> and then he's also credited for, in the 70s, leading a revival of interest in Jewish music and klezmer music. And he was an apprentice of the, the greatest living uh, clarinet player of that style of his time, Dave Taras. In my own life, I mean, I think he, he brought brought in the first Jewish music that I ever checked out on purpose, <laughs> um, and that was an album called Songs of Our, of Our Fathers with the great David Grisman, and Grisman wrote, I have this quote here somewhere, it says, if the only thing I ever did was give Andy his first mandolin lesson, it would have been a life well spent. So, yeah, he's a guy who's... Uh, done it all. He's also got a huge uh, influence of jazz, especially, you know, uh, what they called the new thing. You know, people like Archie Shep and John Coltrane. So he's, he brings new new languages into styles like bluegrass. Um, yeah, and he's got a new album. It's called Monroe Bus. I strongly suggest you check it out. We'll be listening to some selections from that, as well as under our conversation, you'll hear some other tracks from his prolific career, and um, I think you're going to dig it. So, plus, if you live in New York City, you can catch Andy Statman. He, he plays around town with his trio, Jim Whitney and Larry Eagle, and yeah, I, I hope this conversation inspires you as much as it inspired me. So here we go to Brooklyn to the home of Andy Statton. Great to hang with you. This is Great awesome. to hang with you. Thanks. Yeah. So your family, for generations, it was it was a musical family. There's cantors. And yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. They, on on my mother's side, we had cantors, which are uh, Jewish religious singers. Uh, they were they were also composers of, re, of religious melodies, going back to the um, probably mid 1700s. Wow. And uh, when they came to America, I know my um, great great grandfather. I think he had seven daughters. And they would all, his, the, the, if you wanted to marry one of his daughters, you had to be a cantor. Wow. So, um, so, uh. So you were bred. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm saying it's, it's, it's there. Yeah. Mean... No, no, no. So this, I'll, I'll, okay. I'll tell you something funny. But anyway, so when they came to America, <clears throat> this, would, this would be my grandfather's generation. Mm. You know, this would be, you know, um, 
you know, people started coming in the, you know, the 1880s, but, you know, and then the, you know, late, in, you know, um, you know, there were, you know, different parts of Eastern Europe, they had to move around, but they were my mother's family, originally Lithuania, they were in Poland. Um, so, uh, you know, that Poland, that at that time, my grandfather came late 1800s, early 1900s, it was, it was controlled by uh, Russia. And um, the, 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 uh, the Tsar... It was was really very harsh on the Jews, and they would um, they would uh, just conscript conscript Jews and 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 treat them horribly, try to make them into Christians, this and that. They just they just um, it was a really bad scene. So um, I know both my grandfathers on my mother's side and my father's side they 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 escaped, they were able to escape from the uh, Russian army. There's like an underground railroad, so to speak. And um, the uh, Ellen Bogan is probably German, no? Yep. Yeah, Katzen yeah. Ellen Bogan. Katzen it Ellen was a Bogen. lake yeah, in yeah. Germany. Yeah. Where from? Where in Germany? I, well, I think the place is called Katzen Ellen Bogan. In fact, there, do you remember a hit song called Katzen Ellen Bogan by the Sea? Some people know this. Anyway, I might. <laughs> no, so I can, you know, <laughs> it might be before your time. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so yeah. Uh, anyway, the, the, the um, what are you going to say? Uh, so when they came to America, um, they got into um, they got into music. They just that was that was they grew up with that. So um, the the um, the older ones they were na- they were named William and Eugene Howard, and they had a sister who also sang. They were all um, cantors and opera singers, and um, Willie Howard. Um, you know, they, they did vaudeville, and he, he started, um, he was very popular. In fact, I think he did, right before he did, he did the first one-man show on Broadway. And This uh, is your grandfather? No, 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 this, yeah. this, would, this would be my grandfather's first cousin. Okay. So my, my, my first cousin twice removed. In fact, supposedly Marlon Brando cited him as, as one of the actors he modeled himself off. And he would do, he was the first, one of the first Jews to do... Um, he did very early shorts, you know, those, those like 20, 30 minute movies, you know, that in between the main feature movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, he didn't, he didn't do it in like a typical, you know, with a Jewish accent or this or uh-huh. that. He was the first just to, you know, play whatever character he was playing. So he had a lot of famous characters he played. I mean, the younger people won't relate to this, but you know, who Marie Chevalier was. So there was a whole thing people used to make fun of Marie Chevalier and singing it, you know, like, we're from Mockingbird, things like you, da 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 da. So he sang that. So, um, you know, this, the, uh, Willie Howard was the first one to sort of imitate him. He had it like a, the French teacher, he had a, one of his things. Anyway, so they're on Broadway. Another cousin, these are all first cousins, um, was a guy named Sammy Fain, who was, um, he started out, you know, he sang in the Yiddish theater and stuff like that. Yeah, I've heard the, the, that name. But yeah. he, he started, he was writing in Tin Pan Alley. So he was part of, um, he knew Ellington and Fats Waller and, 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 you know, Gershwin and Cole Porter and this and that. He, he knew all those people. In fact, he used to tell me, he said, whenever he saw Fats Waller, he said, Fats Waller would always put his, his, his hand in your pocket. And he said he'd either be taking out money or putting in money. You never <laughs> knew which he did. So Sammy Fain, when they started having sound in movies, 
they brought him out to Hollywood to write for the movies. So um, I used to go visit him when I used to play out in, in L.A. back in the, uh, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And he had like three or four Oscars on his piano, you know, for the, for the best song in a movie for the year. And uh, he, he, you know, he wrote, I mean, you know, he wrote the music for Alice in Wonderland. He wrote wow. Love is a Many Splendid Thing. He wrote I'll Be Seeing You. You know, ah, that's my grandmother's favorite song. Yeah, he, you know, I mean, he just <laughs> secret love, you know, April love. He, I mean, he wrote. I mean, he, you know, he was writing since since they had sound and you know, so he was, and he was friends with that whole, you know, that whole Hollywood scene, that whole classic Hollywood scene. He used to go to the races almost every day with Jimmy Durante. He take wow. me out to the Brown Derby, and he, you know, he was. Uh, when I wanted to get into ASCAP, you know, there's <laughs> no problem. <laughs> let, let him in, you know. So, uh, was he involved with vaudeville earlier? Just I don't. When, well, he he might have been yeah. involved with vaudeville. I know he also he had like national radio shows where he played okay. piano and sing. Uh-huh. They used to say like he, he wasn't a great singer, but he could put it over. Mm-hmm. So they would have like the Sammy Fain half hour hour, you know, during World War Two and after, and he. Um, so I had all this stuff in my background, and yet when I wanted, when I was into playing hooky from school, you know, and, and, you know, just wanting to play music, you know, my parents were, you know, they weren't so pleased, you know, and it, it's, uh, you know, I think they were, they were scared that, you know, you know how, how can you make a living playing music? It's, it's so difficult, you know, they, 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 they could see. You know, um, you know. Once I started getting good reviews, actually, like in the Times, or whatever, th- they said, "Okay, so maybe this is something now." But until then, you know, I, I want. To, I have an aunt who's going to be a hundred. Um, my mother's sister. I said to her, I think the last time I was, I said, "How?" You know, I said, "You know, there's obviously a genetic thing. It's, it's, you know, like how come? <laughs> you know, why was this? Why did I have such big fights with them?" You know, and although they always would pay for the lessons and they'd always let me, you know. Um, and, and she said, you know, they were concerned about, you know, the, the, the making a living. So, but, uh, yeah, so I, I, so that's that's just part of the background. So, um, I guess it's just... Um, were you hearing this stuff around the house? Were you hearing that kind of music or no? The show music? Well, or? well no, no, more like, I mean, I knew that cantorial music at some time was actually really popular on records yeah, yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. There's still a somewhat of a... I heard everything. I mean, back... I grew up in Jackson Heights and, and you know, I was born in 1950. I'm 68, so I would... When I grew up there, you had early television. So you had these things called Farmer Gray cartoons, which are the original Max Fleischer cartoons, which had no sound to them. So they would put classical music to it. They would put square dance music to it. They would put early jazz to it. I mean, I remember hearing, you know, like when I, I realized later, I, they, I heard... Or something. Yeah, yeah, and I heard Joe Venuti and Eddie yeah. Lang. I mean, I, yeah. I heard all that, you know, all that stuff was part of these, and you'd hear these same cartoons over and over, and you'd get this music in your head. I'd hear show tunes and classical music, you know, on, on, on the record player in the house. We also had 78s of cantorial music and... and um, uh, you know, Yiddish songs, you know, we had a, 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 a record of uh, what they now call klezmer music that we used to listen to dance, you know, in, in the, you know, family gatherings, you know, there'd be, I'd walk in the street and there'd be, 
you know, there'd be the, the Chinese laundry blasting, you know, Cantonese opera, you know, all, all day. Um, I mean, it was, you know, I just heard everything, you know, I could hear anything. Um, walking through the streets when I grew up there, it was, it was a, um, you know, mainly like a, an Irish, Italian, and Jewish neighborhood. Everyone got along, everyone, no, no one cared what you were, what your background was, Every, you know, everyone did their thing. And, um, you know, not only that, but I mean, you grew up, there was still, it was so close after World War II. You had all, you know, all that stuff still happening. And they had, you know, they had cartoons from there, also from that, just not only the teens in the 20s, but the 30s, 40s, you know, um, there, you know, particularly World War II cartoons, you know, by, you know, not only by Disney, but, um, you know, like Heckle and Jekyll and those, you know, I forgot who, the Terry Tunes, I think they were called. And they all had scores like, that were like, sort of like um, Louis Jordan-ish type scores or, you know, um, <clears throat> the uh, the streetlights were from, you know, probably around World War One or pre-World War One. you know, you, I mean, you still had, you, you still had like 50, 60, 70 years of of history, like gas streetlights you're talking about. Like no, no, no. The for electric, okay. a little electricity, but because okay. Jackson Heights was only developed, I think, in the 20s, 20s, okay. 30s, Crimsworth farmland. But you had living around you all this stuff, and then I had my my grandparents and my great aunt and and uncles from you know Russian from Poland. They they were living right there. One was living in a house, so you know they were in the neighborhood. So I just had this huge mix of sounds and different great music mm-hmm. happening. And you didn't have resistance to any of this stuff? Like, you, you weren't eye-rolling, like, ugh, this is my parents' music, this is so dated, or you were just open to everything? Yeah, I, yeah. I had no... Um, to me, the... the, the um, in fact, if anything, I, I would look up to older people rather than, than um, you know... I. Uh, you know, I, I saw an interview with, with a, you know, a good young musician recently saying, oh, this is what, the, you know, we young people like, and they want to, you know, blah, blah, and, and, you know, it's like they're sort of blind, you know, they're blind because, they, right. you know, it's, uh, um, I, I, I never, you know, quality music has nothing to do, is, is not on a timeline. It's either, it's either has quality or it doesn't, right. and it's not, you know, there's no timeline for this stuff. You know, is is uh, you know is is, is you know who, who's who's better, John Coltrane or Lester Young? It's just different, but they're right. both great. You know, they're expressing different things in different ways, but they're both great. You know, how can you, you know, you hear Sonny Rollins talk about Coleman Hawkins? I mean, is he still like you know, you know? You know, yeah. yeah.
gotten to interview a few of the greats and, and been able to touch on certain historical periods that I was always so curious about. Um, you you got to be are the first person that I'm, I'm get to meet that spent some time in Greenwich Village 1965 right. in the folk scene. So I'm curious if you could kind of paint the picture a bit and also I'm, I'm curious if it did it feel like something was really happening? Or, you know, because sometimes historically we look back and right, say, right. say this was an amazing period, but maybe it just felt like normal so life. I, I, I should go back a little bit. So sure. um, I, have a, I have a brother who's um, like a, almost eight years older than me. He was, he was going to college. And, uh, you know, at that time, that was when the big folk revival was happening. So he was like sort of he got into that whole scene and he'd be bringing home um, you know first like uh, Kingston Trio records and Limelighter records and then he started bringing home John Baez and Bob Dylan Eric Von Schmidt and Dave Van Rock of course with Dinner Records and um, you know Jug Band records and he wound up forming a Jug Band you know um, which used to rehearse uh, I grew up in Jackson Heights in Queens so um they used to rehearse very often in, in you know, the, in the apartment we lived in there. And, um, you know, so I was really excited by the music. And then he started getting some uh, New Lost City Ramblers, if you know who they were. They're, they're one of the early um, sort of uh, old-time uh, groups, you know, up north with Mike Seeger and Tom Haley and John Cohn originally. And uh, some records by the Greenbrier Boys, which had Ralph Winter and John Harrell and Bob Yellen. Um, you know, these are all people who were part of this this whole uh, traditional folk music scene. You know, that was going back to the '40s in New York City, and uh, was just continuing. And then he started bringing back some, you know, home some real bluegrass records, which really really excited me. So. Um, I wound up playing guitar, and I really wanted playing banjo, and then playing banjo. It's about 13, maybe, I was playing guitar, I was 11, 12. I was around 13, maybe, when I started playing banjo. And uh, back at the time, there was the fountain in, um, in Washington Square Park, and on Sundays, people would get together and just jam out there. So there'd be different um, groups of musicians playing. There'd be one group that would be doing, say, you know, country blues, one group doing old-time music, one group doing bluegrass, one doing topical song, you know, just mm-hmm. different, different groups of people. Maybe sometimes th- these groups would be duplicated, you know, different cliques. So I started going down there and playing with people and, and um, you know, getting involved uh, 
you know, and playing in bands and things like that. And particularly when I switched to mandolin when I was around 15, things really started moving for me. But um, the scene back then was a, it was a very, very free scene. I was still a little young, you know, by the time I was in my later teens, I was able to get a better handle of what was going on. I wasn't, I was just interested in, it's true, always, I was always just interested in the music, not so much what was going on. But there was a place called the Folklore Center, which is a young who, who just died, um, you know, in Sweden, ran for many years. That's where, I believe, Dylan did his first concert. And he sold strings and instruments and records and Sing Out magazine, which was a big part of that whole scene back then. And uh, when that closed, there became a place called Fretted Instruments. There was just a lot that was going on, and there were a number of clubs there, and what I was interested in was really just the bluegrass music back then. So um, there's a place called the, uh, name Hood, I forgot his first name, Um, Southern, he ran the Guest Eye Cafe on McDougal's downstairs, a little, you know, the whole place might not have, you know, as big as this, you know, maybe these two rooms at the most with a small stage. And he started bringing people like Bill Monroe and uh, Reno and Smiley and Doc Watson and just a lot of, a lot of the greats. And uh, I would be sitting as close as I am to you, you know, seeing them. So um, there was that whole end of the village. And when I started, you know, I sort of stopped being interested in bluegrass and wanted to get into jazz there was a whole scene down there as well you know with the vanguard and um but particularly east village you know you you had uh slugs you had the dama selling about before and, and a bunch of other places that just had you know great great music and um you know from the time i was about 14 15 i was used to going to um you know, with people older than me, the, the bands I was playing with, these guys were in, uh, you know, usually end of, you know, high school, early college, yeah, cars. We'd go out to rural New Jersey to some of the bars there and see some of the southern bands coming in and playing. And, you know, the, the, I knew the musicians, they would just let me in and I'd just get a hamburger and a Coke and some fries. And, you know, so I, I was still underage, but, you know, somehow they, they saw we serious about the music, so they let me in. They didn't, you know... No one really, really cared. And uh, a bit later, once I started, um, how can I put it? Um, I left the bluegrass scene. And, uh, you know, but in the bluegrass scene, I met people like David Bromberg, if you know who David is. And, um, I mean, should I say anything about David for people who may not yeah. know? I mean, David was, a, he did a lot of session work for people like Bob Dylan and a lot of other folk singers. For Jerry Jeff Walker, he's on the original Mr. Bojangles, which most people probably don't know now. And uh, I met him back in the bluegrass scene, we were friendly. And, um, uh, so that whole scene continued. And for a few years, I had just sort of gotten out of that scene and gotten to playing you know, playing jazz, particularly I liked Albert Eiler and Coltrane, and but you know other things. And then I got into blues, you know, rhythm and blues and Chicago blues and rock and you know, I was just playing saxophone. I was playing sax for mandolin. I was playing saxophone, and you know, I was playing in those type of bands. And uh, this was the during the Vietnam War, and uh, I wound up going to a school called Franconia College for college, which was a uh, 
was like a very progressive, it was sort of like what Goddard was or is. I don't know much about Goddard anymore, but it was a very sort of cutting edge school. You can make your own classes like I made it, you know, a Thelonious Monk tutorial and this and that for me. So anyway, um, after one term, I realized I just wanted to play music and I I was really wasting my parents' money. And uh, so, you know, I wanted to get out of the house and stuff. So, you know, I was working as a messenger, you know, or working in a delicatessen. But I realized I, I had to start making some real money. So I had gotten a call um, well, this, this I'm going to leave that out because we're centering on the village. So I started going, I had reacquainted myself with some of these people I used to play bluegrass with. They wanted me to play mandolin and some of these more, for lack of a better word, progressive bands. These were people, bands writing instrumentals that um, uh, were not based on the basic bluegrass uh, chord form, but, but, you know, extensions of it. And... Um, so I began making the scene in, in, in the village again, you know, you know, backing up folk singers, this is that, and I quickly ran into to David Bromberg, who was with Columbia Records then, and had a, made a name for himself. He was sort of the first person to um, combine different types of roots music in one show, meaning he could, he could do, you know, the regular topical folk music, but he's a great blues player, he could play Chicago blues as well, electric blues, he could... He could, you know, he could play bluegrass, he could play old time. He did all this, the first person to put all that stuff together in, in one package. Yeah, I think that's something that people forget now is that it, it was there's a big partition and if you played, uh, you know, St. Louis <laughs> finger style or something like that, you didn't uh, play Mississippi Delta blues or something like that, right? It was right, pretty yeah, segmented. Yeah, yeah the, the, all, these, all these sort of... Um, like everything was segment. What happened in in the in the in the, the late '60s was that a lot of these sort of alternative um, forces had a confluence. So like it would be like the the you know the beats were into jazz and you had the jazz and the beats, but they would be really down on rock and roll and the rock and roll would be down on the jazz. You know, it's just all these. There were all these like sharp judgmental divisional lines, but they all came together in, in the whole explosion in the 60s. Right. And uh, it... Um, and folk music was very associated with communism and working people's movements and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, yeah, although like when it got to, to bluegrass and old time, the, the, that wasn't... No one was really into politics in the bluegrass and old time. That was not really... Um, they were just into the music. The, the, the topical folk singers, by and large, were... Um, more interested in, um, in in singing, you know, there were like, um, you know, broadsides in the old sense, you know, like political statements, you know, set like to music. Like Pete Seeger type. Yeah, thing. that type yeah. of thing, yeah. And I was, just, I was, that, that really was never much for me. Yeah. I mean, of all those guys, I mean, I, you know, I, um, you know, I, I always loved Dave Van Rock, but he did like a bunch of ragtime music. He did a lot of, a lot of different things, um, you know, but I, so that wasn't the scene that I was involved in so much. That was just a, 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 a different scene. I was never really involved in any sort of um, uh, political use for the music that I'm playing. You know, I'm just, I, I just want to keep the music music and have it as a as a unifying force rather than serving any sort of 
ideology other than just trying to play the best that I can, play the best music that I possibly can. That that's that's my ideology, and I don't want to, you know. Um, so, you know, people change, things change, and it's you know, but music music changes, but it doesn't change, and it's either, you know. Um, it's, it's it's either happening or it's it's not happening so much. So you know, it's music is music. So um, that's what always I was always into. Um, so anyway, I started making. David invited me to you know play a whole bunch of gigs with him, and then I was uh, he had a, he had a, a great um, electric bass player a guy named Steven Berg, who was also an incredible electric guitar guitarist and wound up running a studio and I think he produced some like Lattice Night and the Pips and things like that. He's unfortunately gone but um, he was playing electric bass and uh, you know David put me on salary um, playing uh, mandolin and saxophone and, and you know all of a sudden like you know by this time I was 20, 21 you know I, I was professional level but I wasn't professional I could see in my mind's eye there was this like thin curtain or veil between professional and not professional I could I could see it I could experience it and um, after my first week on the road um, I, I saw myself going through that you know going through the veil and um, you know we were on the road constantly I mean it's uh you know, I remember, um, it's actually on Pesach time, Passover time, we, um, I went on the road, went out to Chicago, and uh, we went to see, um, there was an incredible, she's still a lot of great singer named Tracy Nelson, who was one of these great women singers out of the uh, 60s, like Janis Joplin. She had, you know, you know, a very, you know, bluesy, you know, down-home type of band, you know, with horns stuff called Mother Earth. I don't know if you've ever heard, ever heard of her. Or... Sounds familiar, but... I, she I she was great. So, I mean, I always loved her. So, so yeah. all of a sudden, there I am, you know, hanging out with her and her manager guy named Travis. And, you know, they could see I was green. They sort of took me under their wing. And, and we played we played for two weeks in Chicago at a place we... Um, we were on the same bill for one week as Cheech and Shang. We alternated with them. And then the next week, we alternated with Randy Newman. And during one of these gigs, there was a group called Compost, which came down. The guys from Compost. I think they just recorded with with Columbia. And, um, you know, David was on Columbia. He was a big, you know, had tour support and stuff. So, um who was in the band, who came over, and they were very nice, giving us their records. It was, it was Joe Zawinul, um, wow. uh, Jacques Dejeuner, I think Ron McClure, and I forgot who, you know, so I knew who these guys are. I said, wow, it's like amazing meeting, you know, so, you know, wow. So, uh, so anyway, so that, so, the, you know, the, getting back into the scene in the village, you know, a scene that I cultivated back in my, you know, early teens and preteens, um, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, that sort of got me out there as a working musician. Yeah, and I guess it was such a um, direct education to be seeing people like Bill Monroe at the Gaslight or whoever, you know, so so closely and intimately. Yeah, well, I was... Um, um, 
you know, I was a student of David Grisman, you know, gave me right. some lessons and got, got me going. And David was, you know, part of that scene. And um, so it was an introduction. But we got down, um, uh, you know, to the, there was a place in, in uh, about an hour out of Philly out in the farmland in Pennsylvania called Sunset Park, which was one of these uh, um, open-air country music parks. There were a lot of transported Southerners there. In fact, what's his name? Del McCrane's brother, Jerry, lived right around there. They were there. And I, I, I used to, you know, I just got to know all, all the musicians, particularly a guy named Vassar Clements, who, if oh, you know yeah, about, you know. And I met him when I was about 15, and I asked him some, about some stuff he did, because I was busy spending, you know, all my days not going to school, but transcribing solos and learning the language, learning... And, uh, you know, I asked him how he did some stuff on fiddle. It's the same, more or less the same finger. And he would just show me stuff. And, uh, you know, we, we, we quickly became friends. He was very kind to me. And I, you know, I eventually wound up, you know, working for him out in Nashville, you know, about 10 years later. Um, uh, but, yeah, I was, I was lucky. I was, um, at that time, it's really interesting. I mean, all the primary figures in the creation of bluegrass were still alive and they all still had classic bands then in fact you know it could be argued that you know in, in that's just when the bluegrass festival movement was starting I was at those first bluegrass festivals and um, that was sort of maybe the last how can I put it the musicians stayed great and they continued to grow. But what was happening in the music then, you know, there was a bigger economic activity and they also had their classic bands. They were all at, the, at their height of their powers. There was sort of like the, the um, you know, almost the end of, of just the greatness of that first and second generation. Um, and then the music started morphing into other things when I was in a group called Breakfast Special in the early 70s and playing those festivals and things like that. But, um, you know, each music has its time and place and goes for a certain point, and then it sort of moves on. And, and maybe the thrust of the music changes or maybe it, it, it just becomes dormant or whatever. So, um, but the initial people who created bluegrass, um, by and large, they were all individuals. They all sounded like themselves. Um, and they, um, to me, in terms of cre creativity and depth of feeling for that music, you know, bluegrass pre-1970, and it, it's just, that's really, that's really where it's at. I mean, that's, that's to me the, the, um, the most amazing period. That, that's what got me into the music hearing those guys. And, um, you know, it's, it's just changed and involved into different things and uh, aesthetics have changed over the years. And um, But that, you know, I mean, that, that time, you know, the time the whole thing was happening with, you know, the big, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and the Grateful Dead and Jimi Hendrix... You know, Monroe and Jim and Jesse, all these bands had their last great classic bands. That's when Chicago blues was really exploding at, at that time. There were a lot of things, and that's when Coltrane was happening. And, and, and um, 
you know, there was a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff, a lot of great music was happening at that time. That was just a particular era. You had it right after World War II, you know, and, um, you know, you had it, you know, 20 years later then, 65, 67, you know, into the early 70s, you still... You had that thing, and then I don't know if in almost any, well, at least in certain, certainly in terms of American music, if you've had people who produced a more, um, a deeper or more meaningful music in those styles after that. There are great jazz players around, but but Coltrane is still, you know, considered. You know, do people have that that as much of that emotional? You know, Coltrane can make you cry. You know, listen um, to Monk or Jackie McLean or you know, or, or you know, you have it in bluegrass. You have it in blues. There are great blues people around, but is it is, is it like hearing you know Muddy Waters or Little Walter or you know? Well, I guess back then it wasn't necessarily codified. I don't know if Muddy Waters was saying, "I'm going to play a blues concert tonight." No, 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 no. But yeah. but, but I'm saying in, in t- it was it was a right. living, breathing, creative organism, and somehow after it goes beyond that first or second generation, things it ju- it, it just changes. Yeah. But I mean, if um, you know, like, well, there's well, there's great. Um, You know, so, so there, there are many wonderful tennis saxophone players around. You know, I would say, but you know, listen, you should really, you know, you ever heard this guy John Coltrane? Right. You should listen to Coltrane. You know, should the Coleman Hawkins, Leslie right. Young, Don. But you know, it's it's you know, it's um, I see what's happened partially with the information explosion is that in some ways. There's so much people don't really, they're like blinded. It's like looking at the sun, yeah. you know, and you don't know where to go. And, and I see, I don't know, you can tell me if you have this in Indian music, that I don't know how much Indian music has changed, although I assume it has changed in the last, say, 30 to 40 years. You know, you, it's a similar issue. It's, uh, you know, it's become, there's a, it's become codified in a certain way, and the presentation uh, and the professionalism has become so paramount that uh, it's gotten it's, slick. It's gotten slick. It's like a Broadway show. And, you have and, that in bluegrass too. You have yeah. That, yeah. So okay, so we kind of we got we're getting the story together a little bit, dating all the way back to, to Poland and this family of cantors, and then you're in Jackson Heights with all this music swimming around, and then it seemed like pretty much the, the first stop for you was the Greenwich Village getting involved with all this progress right, stuff. Right, And then where did... By the way, did you end up playing with... with I, I thought I read somewhere Bob Dylan and Gary yeah. Garcia. Well, How'd I, that happen? You know, um, David Robin was very gracious and he would have me play on sessions. He was a session man on so I did sessions with... Uh, I did a session which was called the Doug, Doug Sam Quintet. And... Uh, you know, so Dylan was on their sessions, and then Flacco Menace, who I reconnected with at, at the NEA thing, who was, you know, who's getting the award there when I got the award as well. And then, um, you know, the great Tex-Mex accordion player, Flacco Menace. And um, 
we did uh, three days in the studio, Wally Hyder Studio with, with the Grateful Dead. Oh, wow. And that was that was really, um, you know, that was a lot of fun also. Yeah, um, good guys? Yeah, um, they were... Um, they, they were nice. They were very... Um, you know, they, 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 they were just, they were professional. I, I was, you know, I appreciated that I was never that into the dead. When I got to play with them, I realized, you know, that they, they were really, really good. And, um, but, you know, it's, it's they sort of, um, they were professional and courteous and, and kept their cards close, you know, to their vest. They were, I don't know if the, the band ever did a session as a backup band for someone else before. Or since, so. Um, but and I was, they were backing up who? David Bromberg. Oh, they were backing up. Yeah. Bromberg. So oh, I was playing okay. mainly saxophone, and then we did some trios with me and David and Jerry playing. I played mandolin and acoustic guitars. Um, and we also, you know, did some rehearsing with Dylan and, and did some, you know, live gigs with Dylan. And, um, did you connect with him at all as a person, or is more professional kind of situation? No, it was a professional situation. I didn't really have much of it. We, you know, we just rehearsed and, and that was it. And, yeah. or, or, or we did the, you know, the gig and and, 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 and that was it. You know, um, but uh, you know, I, when I was rehearsing and working, I realized how great a singer he is. You know, um, I mean, I'd li- I always liked some of his stuff, but actually hearing him live and stuff, and it's a, you know, you know, he's a really you know, a wonderful singer, really wonderful singer. Um, and, uh, you can write a song, too. That's for sure. That's for <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh... Okay, so what, what was the, the next... So the next... It seemed like the next stop for you musically after the, the bluegrass was you made a break into into jazz is that is that is that what happened next or well no no that that had happened already okay because <clears throat> this point I was, I was already playing saxophone i went i went okay. from um you know in bluegrass i you know sort of um there's a whole group of bluegrass people who are you know listening to uh, like joe Venuti and eddie lang and stefan and django and people like mm-hmm. that so i started listening to that and i started listening to monk and mingus and, and bird and you know, Miles Davis and stuff, uh, and, and you know, then I heard on the radio um, a record called Albert Island in Greenwich Village, and that was when Albert Island was, um, he had a violinist, maybe a cello player, you know, Donald, his, his brother, was playing uh, trumpet or cornet, and I think he was maybe playing alto, maybe tenor, I'm not sure, um, not sure, but um, the melodies that he wrote then were very much like folk melodies, almost like Balkan-sounding melodies, or people said like sort of like Salvation Army Band-sounding melodies. They were very simple melodies, very folksy, and we, they played these melodies over and over again until they exploded into a, um, uh, you know, the drum we playing basically um, laying down a, a palette of just free rhythmic drumming, no, no right. real rhythm. It's, it's, a, it's a rhythm, but it's more pulse rather than a rhythm, but it's its own thing. And they would play different sound colors and screams and harmonics and this and that. You know, I was like 16, 17 years old, you know, very romantic at that point. So, ah, this is for me, this is what I want to do, you know. So, 
I, I started playing saxophone lessons. I mean, musically, it's much more wide open, I would think, in a certain sense, than, than it was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, I mean, it, it affected my mandolin playing a lot. I mean, it, it, each thing affects the other. Sure. So, um, uh, I began just, you know, playing in different bands, you know, I'm doing a lot of, I've only done a lot of duets with drummers, I used to get together with drummers and guitars and just play, you know, put together bands, just play, you know, spontaneous improvisations, and um, it was great, I mean, I, I never, you know, and through meeting this, 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 this saxophone player I studied with a guy named Richard Grando, who's sort of an unsung hero, he had learned from Sonny Stint. Uh, he was he moved to New York in the I guess early to mid sixties. And um, you know, he was just part of that whole scene they used to call the new thing back then. And he um and he wanted to work with people like David Bowie and Tom Packard. He did a lot of varied stuff before he, he, you know, but he was also at that time you know, jazz was very much into spirituality and very much into, quote-unquote, you know, world music. This book was called World Music. And, uh, so, you know, through him and whatever, I got into Carl Jung and started getting into spirituality and, and you know, started to listen to music from, you know, all over the world. I remember the first time I saw him, he said, come over, I'll see if I, I, want, if I want to teach you. So I, came, I went over there. And he, uh, we spent like three hours talking about whether God exists or not. That was my first lesson. Okay, I'll take you as a student. That was my first lesson. And, uh, um, you know, I was 16, 17. And, uh, you know, we got very close. But through that, I sort of wound me ultimately getting back into, you know, some of the, you know, Jewish instrumental music and, you know, ultimately getting back into Judaism and, and all this other stuff. So It was through this, this guy's influence, this free jazz... Yeah, kind of yeah. Discussed. Well, he's also a bebop player, but he, he okay. played free jazz. He, he could do all that other stuff, and he mm -hmm. wound up. He's one of the early session men on the uh, a lot of those, um, uh, you know, late sixty, early seventy, um, you know, um, you know, folk, folk rock things. And then he wound up working with David Bowie for a while. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I was telling you earlier how I just spoke with Reggie Workman, and these guys were getting into vegetarianism and the I Ching and all this stuff like in the 50s yeah yeah you know, yeah the jazz guys were, were, were requests you know searchers you know yeah yeah and, um, you, you know people like Youssef Latif was, was working with instruments from all over the place yeah back then it's, it's amazing so that okay so then that happens you get you get kind of uh, this urge to return to to your own culture, I suppose, the culture of your birth. Yeah. And um, then you end up like apprenticing with with the greatest clarinet player of, of, of that tradition. Well, the greatest living. I mean, there uh, were yeah. others who were equally great, just yeah. a slightly different style, different yeah. take, you know. But yeah, yeah, Dave Taras, yeah. Yeah. So I had, um, it's crazy. Uh, I was called down to... to um, I started studying different types of ethnic music. You know, I met I met uh, um, Zev Feldman, who's a you know a, a wonderful musician and musicologist, and he was playing santuri. He played a lot of mm -hmm. um, Persian music, 
and worked with Persian musicians, and he also was a, a really wonderful Balkan um, percussionist. And uh, we started playing together, and, and we developed a diverse repertoire, and uh, we decided we wanted to get into, uh, there were one or two great um, Azerbaijani classical musicians in New York. So I started playing Tara Stelling with him, and we started playing some Azerbaijani music and, and Turkish music. Also, I was very interested in, in the Ypret music. I started studying with this guy named Pericles Halkias. I don't know if you know Pericles. He uh, was a genius musician. His son Petra Lucas is, is one of the great clarinetists, and he's pretty old now in, in, in Greece now. But um, anyway, I, I was getting more and more interested in, 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 in the, um, the, the traditional Jewish music You know that I heard as a kid. I mean, at one point back in... A number of years earlier, I thought of uh, playing some of those melodies and like, and then doing what Albert Eiler did with it, you mm -hmm. know. So I started fooling around with these tunes, and I looked up this guy Dave Taris in the Union book, and uh, you know, at this point, I lived way out in Bayside, so it was like a you know, a half an hour to forty-minute bus ride to, to Main Street and or to, to, to Jamaica, and then you know, like, a, so he lived out in Canarsie then, so I just. Um, you know, it took me like two and a half hours to get to him. And, uh, you know, I called him up and he was amazed that anyone was interested in, you know, learning this music. So I transcribed uh, some of his, 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 his stuff, mainly on saxophone and mandolin. I didn't really have a clarinet then. And uh, we sort of hit it off. And then um, I, was, uh, I got a call from Vasa Clements to come down to Nashville and play. So uh, I, I moved down to Nashville, and, and you know I was on the road with Vassar for a while. Out, you know, on one of these old beaten-up buses. You know, and uh, um, used to do package shows occasionally with Hank Williams Jr. You know, or uh, Jerry Jeff Walker and the Lost Gonzo Band, one of those like country outlaw things. Anyway, I came back to New York, and uh, I looked up David. I'd, I'd you know, I just moved to Brighton when I came back, and he just moved, you know, right near there. So went over, gave me clarinet, and we we started in, and you know, we came uh, very very close. You know, he was sort of an old world type of apprentice um, situation with him, and he had no real way of teaching. I would pretty much just the way I did with bluegrass or jazz or whatever, I would slow down the records, tape them, slow them down, and, and try and get everything note for note. And what I couldn't do, I'd ask him. And, um, I mean, a typical thing is I'd just come over there and we'd talk for a while. We'd have some tea and cookies. You know, his wife, his wife was a really good cook. And then he'd just go and say, wait a minute, and come back, and he'd take out his clarinet, and he'd just play for an hour just play things and I said oh Dave how do you do that I say Dave would you ornament this way or that way you know I'll do it this way never that way and a lot of times when he was playing he would look at me and give me make certain facial expressions or things with his eyes or move his hands in certain ways to, you know to indicate to me the certain poignancy of of what was happening at that point musically that he was doing so I mean I I learned as much, if not more, from that than the actual sort of technical things that he might have shown me. It's just, you know, being with him and, and having, you know, seeing his body language as he's playing. And, um, you know, 
a lot of the hand gestures that he would make when he played, uh, when I started praying in, in, in Hasidic shuls, those are the exact same, same hand gestures that the people praying were making. Wow. And, you know, I, be, you know, I began to realize that what they, what they call klezmer music is really sort of an instrumental form of Hasidic music, by and large. And that's really where the heart and soul of, of, uh, of what klezmer music is. That's where it really comes from. So... But yes, yeah, so anyway, I was I was privileged, you know. We, me and Zeph produced this last record, um, and the guy's a giant, a great composer, great synthesizer. Um, he uh, he, all, you know, synthesizers of different types of say East European music that he brought in and knew. You have to know what you can bring in, what will work, what's not going to work. You know, you have to be a master of the style in order to really understand how to how to how to combine things and um, he knew what it, what it, you know what to bring in in terms of American music also I mean he he probably played more American music than he played uh, Jewish music um, he you know all these um, I mean he had radio shows and he worked with all the great candles and all the great Yiddish theater composers and singers but when he played weddings he, he you know he played saxophone a lot and uh he basically played what they call the whole great American songbook from the mid-20s up until, you know, the early Beatles, you know. And he, in fact, when we did the first concert, uh, his first concert sort of coming out of semi-retirement, um, it was the first real major klezmer concert in New York. It was like a big deal. Um, I, my... Uh, you know, my, my cousin Sammy Fain, you know, came down because he remembered Dave from when he was a kid, you know. And, wow. and I, I, I told him, I said, you know, my cousin Sammy Fain is in the audience, and, and I thought he would be <coughs> he would be pleased. He said, why did you tell me that? I'll be so nervous. Not here. <laughs> you know, but Dave was great. He was, you know, he, he knew who he was. He knew what he had accomplished. He knew why people were coming to him. He was very a very smart, very, very savvy guy. And this is a guy who's, who went from, um, you know, playing for, for the landed barons on Saturday nights when they would, they would send a, uh, a, a sledge run by, like, you know, beautiful horses and put furs on, on top of them to keep, them war- to keep the, 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 uh, the musicians warm in, in the sled and these big, you know, lavish balls they'd play. Um, in which country? In Russia? Yeah, it's in Ukraine, yeah. yeah. And... Um, he went from that to seeing people, you know, on the moon going to space. I mean, he he he, he saw it all. I mean, he. You know, I remember when phonographs came in, in into that area. You know, cars. He. Uh, but m- most of these great klezmer came from Hasidic families. They, they were pretty much Hasidic, you know. Well, that's that's really interesting what you're saying. So that the, the roots of it go back to this ecstatic Hasidic tradition. Right. And, and that's something you've explored quite a bit, like uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, you know, I've, I've played a lot of Hasidic music. I've been close to a number of, of uh, what they call rebbes um, of different groups. There are many different groups. Hasidic music is very broad in its scope. There are a lot of different styles and um, m- many genius composers. Some will compose, you know, long, long, um, you know, thirty-six part pieces, you know, long, long pieces, and um, th- there's just there's just a wealth of, of, of 
incredibly deep and, and moving music and, and incredibly creative music as well. There's, I mean, there's such a wide scope of Jewish music that I'm pretty ignorant of, like most people. So the the, the Doina tradition, right? Where what that comes out of the cantorial, like where does that fit in with with all this? Stuff? I mean, I th I think that's a, a thing in Eastern Europe. I don't know exactly. Uh -huh. That you know, they claim it's shepherd's music. You know, there's no real way to know for sure. But in two things, I can say one thing is that if if a Ukrainian played a, a doina, or mm -hmm. uh, say a Moldavian played a doina, and, and a Jew played a doina, they would, they would have a different feeling to it. Sure. So in other words, it would be um, it would be like if if uh, if Ray Charles sings God Bless America as opposed to Kate Smith singing it, right. it's, he, he makes it into a gospel song. Be, right. be, you know, in other words, so th there, th there was a Jewish style which, which was to evoke a certain feeling, and that was done by tone, phrasing, and ornamentation, um, and, and understanding how to deal with the melodic material to bring out this feeling. And each different style in those regions would, would have that. So, so the... The, the the doina goes back to the whole um, the whole shepherd thing of a shepherd playing a doina, you know, out in the fields and this and that. But there's there's the whole, you know, the the, the great patriarchs, you know, particularly you look at, at Moses and David. These were all they were all they were sheep herders, and they would be out in the woods and they would, you know, they herding their sheep and communing with God. So I mean, this is the tradition that goes way back to the beginning of Judaism. I mean, this is. The, 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 this type of thing. So where the doina comes from, I, you know, I, I really don't know. I, I can't say. I don't know if right. it's, you know, um, you know. I, I think similar things exist in, in all those all those cultures. You know, in Eastern Europe and you know the Jewish tradition and the Middle Eastern traditions. I'm sure in the Indian traditions and you know there's, there's similar types of things. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, which is. Um, you know, I mean, doinas in, in certain ways are also almost like, um, like a, I don't want to simpl say a simplified form of raga or, or mohamotaxin. Yeah, sounds, sounds like that to me. But rather than simplified, it could also be something that's, that's um, the other side of the coin is it's something that's much more direct and power-packed and, and achieves its aim very quickly mm -hmm. rather than going through a whole long thing it really gets to you where it gets you to the crescendo where it wants to get you right away mm -hmm. or pretty soon right so it's they're, they're two different they're all great yeah you know so I guess that this period when you started really embracing uh, Jewish music in a big way that's considered you were right in the middle of this major kind of klezmer revival or something like well, that well when, uh, you know, the yeah, I, I, I rather call it, you know, revival of interest in the music. I yeah. mean, the music was really of a time and place, and the the when I did it, when me and you know me and Zeva working together, we didn't know of of anyone else doing it at the time. I just wanted to do it because I said this is I really like the music, this is my own heritage, and I just want to be able to keep this music going just for myself. No one I knew was playing it. 
And wow. um, what year is this around? 1976. Okay. Wow. And 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 um, there was a guy out there, um, an Argentinian who moved to Israel, a really good classical clarinetist named Giora Feidman. But he, so he had heard the tunes, but he played them in the, in his own individualistic way, which really had nothing to do with the tradition. So it didn't really appeal to me. Um, I could appreciate him as, as a musician, but I wanted to play the real thing. So I, you know, I learned on the old Albert system, which is what you know the, all those guys use that Albert system clarinet, which has a certain sound and tone, and. Um, you know, we found out as we were doing it, there was a group of people in, in California doing it. Um, and, you know, there was, uh, and other people in New York were starting to get interested in it. But I think me and Zev did the first actual Klezmer concert in New York. Um, and uh, uh, when we did the concert, someone was there who told Shanaki Records about us, which was, you know, the, just pretty much an Irish label at that point. And, uh, you know, we wound up recording for them. So that was one of the, the early Klezmer records to come out. But, um, so I never, I never looked, you know, I, the whole revival thing is just something that's imposed from the outside. Sure. It's like I wasn't looking to revive anything. I wasn't <laughs> looking to, to, to create a movement. I just enjoyed the music. It's just all about the music. Yeah. I just want to play the music. And the other thing of is they call you revivalist. I mean, that, that's, to me, that's sort of an insulting term. Either you can play the music or you can't. You know, do they call, you know, musicians from, from Japan who are playing Bach, are they revivalists? Mm -hmm. You know, that's not, you know, I mean, what's, what's the difference? Either you can play it or you can't play it. Right. It's, 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 um, it's, it's, it's a very sort of um, unfortunate term. I guess it was first used in jazz when people... We're going to back to playing Dixieland music or something like that, and maybe we went from that tradition. But either they could play it or they couldn't play it. Right. I mean, there's nothing, you know, they're not trying to revive anything. They just, they just dig the music, and that's, you know. So, um, yeah, but I was, I was one, one of, you know, amongst the first you're, to you're be part that. of that. Yeah, that initial thing. Yeah, and then, like, in, I've seen you a couple times here and there at Barbez, and it seems to me that. You, you, you seem to like the music to be spontaneous. I would imagine that your style you prefer yeah. a small, intimate concert so that you can right. really create music. I mean, right. that, I guess we could talk about like the, what, what the settings are for you that, that music really happens. Uh, you, know, um, you know, we've been doing this thing for almost 20 years at this, at this uh, shul down in the... In the um, in, in the West Village, you know, on, on Thursday nights, you know, when we're in town and stuff. And, and uh, it's just, you know, the, I like the audience to be as close to possible. I like to see the audience. I like to be able to have interaction with them if I want. I like, you know, um, I like an intimate feeling rather than a big, a huge, big, you know, you know, I've played, particularly when, you know, I've done a bunch of... affair. <laughs> no, not a friend, no, no, I mean, I've done, I've done huge yeah. concerts yeah. with Ritzak Perlman, you know, like, right. like a, you know, Hollywood Bowl or Tanglewood or some of these, you know, and it's, you know, sometimes you almost feel like, you know, you're not playing for anyone or like you're, you're playing out at the beach and there's, you know, it's just people, you know, it's just, I like it where you can really, a warm hall, like town hall is a very warm hall. I just, I just played at Carnegie at Zenkel, 
is warm, or the big Carnegie is, you know, is, is, is warm also. Um, the, um, you know, I like a, just, a, you know, where I can feel the people, I can relate to them, you know, and uh, or if I'm not relating to them, I could just, you know, I'm, I'm there, with, there, with, there with me and I'm with them. We're there to roll this together, so to right. speak. And, and um, I mean, I'm really, I'm playing, I'm having a dialogue with the other musicians on stage, but we're working off the audience's energy and, and having them there is what raises it to another level. Yeah, and uh, another thing I've, I've noticed about your your music is consistently, if I listen to you playing clarinet or mandolin, it seems like you always know where you're going. It doesn't seem like you're just like throwing out, uh, you know, just throwing out a, a melodic idea and hoping that it's going to land. Maybe no, 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 no. I, yeah. I, I, I pretty much, you know... Um, I've, I've been doing it, you know, I just, I just, you know, it's, it's it sound crazy that, that um, you know, you, you just sort of get in, get into that, um, that emotional area and, and the music sort of, you know, starts happening, you know, you, you, um, you know, if you start out with a compelling idea, it'll usually, you know, it's like, I'm sure you've discussed with other musicians, Music is just a non-verbal form of communication. So, um, you know, we start out with a thought. We're talking, whatever. We have an introduction. We meet each other. There's a there's an unconscious train of thought. Sometimes it can be conscious, and you can say, "Oh, I, you know, I want to make this point, and I know where I'm going. I know what I want to say in a minute and a half from now, and, and how to mm-hmm. get there." So you have you can have the same thing in music. Sometimes it can be conscious like that, or it can be unconscious and just, you know. It's you know like like any point in time it's just it's just the it's just the, t- the top of the fountain the water's you know shooting up and you're at the top and it's going down and with music you know the the music should be the same way the music is just another type of conversation or or, or communication that yeah. that's happening I don't know if there's but you tend to you tend to always uh, everything tends to be precise you know it seems like rhythmically uh, across the board. You know, it's you, you, you seem to. If you're gonna go into a triplet, it's gonna be you're gonna go into a triplet. It's not gonna be like, oh, am I am I going here? Am I not? You know, it seems like you, you really. Oh no, I know what I'm going yeah. for. You know, and I mean, you have to have a, co- a commitment to to what you're playing. Just you have to have a commitment to what you're saying. Yeah. So it's it's you know, if that's what feels what feels to to be the right thing to play, that that that's what I'll play. I mean, once I decide on a tune or, or how to get into a tune, then it, it just sort of, I mean, I can say it forms itself, it just happens. But it's not really just happening. It, it, it happens according to your, um, you know, understanding of where it should go. You, you know, you're governed by an aesthetic and, and years of playing and years of practicing and years of listening. And that's all there, you know, consciously or unconsciously in the background. And it just sort of... Um, Sort of just guys what you do. It's like, 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 I, 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 you know, like, say with indie music, when you first heard indie music, you know, it might have taken you a while to really understand things. And now, if you hear indie music, you hear it in a whole other way. But that's because you're familiar with the language and you have years of conscious and unconscious memories and, and 
you know, you're in there, you're in the same room, you know, in, right. you're in the ball game, in the ballpark, and 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 it's all there. Whether you, you know, it's from whether you want or not, it's there. So when you hear Indian music, you have a wealth of experience, you know, listening to, so you can understand and discern what's going on and understand, you know, what the musicians are doing. And, it's, and it's, when you're playing, it's just the same thing. You know, you, you, you know, you, you learn languages, you learn how to speak them, and then and develop your own language. And, you know, I write a lot of music. Most of the music I record is, is on my own tunes. And um, there are setups for the way I play, or each time you write a tune, particularly, it, it furthers your own development as a musician because it, it brings out different elements of your playing or might create challenges for the way you play and, and you know, you have to grow to be able to play the tune. So right. it's, it's um, yeah, so, you know, I, I, I just do the best I can. It's, yeah. it's, it's uh, you know, I never know how well I'm going to play or not play. It's really not up to me. I just, you know... I just do the best I can. Sometimes I, you know, I, you know, I think I'm playing well. Sometimes I don't think so, and then I hear it back, and it's really not bad at all. And you know, sometimes I think I'm playing well, and I hear it, and I don't like it so much afterwards. You're, you know, you just, you just do what you can do. It's yeah. just, uh, it's, it's. Uh, on one level, it's just music, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, but uh, you know, I just try my best. Yeah, and on this this new album, uh, the. Uh, Monroe bus. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, you have tunes that are almost like a progressive jazz type thing. You have uh, soulful blues tunes. You've got uh, bluegrass originals. And I, I've, I've interviewed other people who have, it seems like, more of a, a machine around them. And I asked them, you know, well, what, what would you do? What kind of music would you make if you didn't have this whole machine around you? But it seems like you're making exactly the music you want to make yeah no I'm doing I'm doing exactly what I want I mean I'm still in the process of studying types of music and trying to learn music and um, transcribing music and it, it's it, there's not enough time to really do what I want to do but I just I let it all sort of ha you know a number of years ago um, you know I you know I, I used to like when I started out Playing the, the Jewish instrumental music, the klezmer music, I, I would I would record that for Shaniki and my own music and more bluegrass-oriented music. The, the, the you know the more American music, um, for lack of a better word, I would record on rounder. But I'm never years ago to say I'm just gonna this way I'm gonna just play music and let it all flow together and use my own aesthetic um, as to um, what I'm gonna do. So if I'm the way I would play like a Hasidic number with, with the trio I work with, you know, Larry Eagle and Jim Whitney, his bass and drums, I'll play it one way. If I'm playing it in a Hasidic gathering, I would play it another way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bring certain things in, probably. You know, if I'm playing um, in a bluegrass band, you know, I'm, I could take it out, but a lot of times I might just try and keep it in that pocket, but be creative with it, keeping it within that, being able to move around the edges of it so it, it's just spontaneous decisions I make but you really need a musician really needs to, to understand one style really deeply they need you need to be able to find your voice in one in one style so that not only have you absorbed what came before you and you can actually replicate what came before you but you found your own voice in that style and once you really understand one style then if you want to learn another style 
it's so much easier because you'll know exactly what, you'll understand really what makes a style tick. And you'll understand how to find out in the other style and immediately what to look for in order to get to the, you know, the fruit of the style and how to get grounded in the style. So it's, you know, nowadays, um, there's so much amazing music available on, um, on YouTube. Um, you know, musicians can very easily become good technicians, but very, you know, not really deep in any one style. You know, they can sure. play okay jazz, they can play okay classical, they can play Irish music, they can play bluegrass, you know. Mm -hmm. But they're not really great in any one of them, and part of that is because they didn't spend the time to get really great in one. If they got really great in one, and if we went through another or another after that, they would understand really you know, what I believe what, what to go for. Yeah, you know Hari Prasad Jarezia? He's one of the great Bansuri player. No, no, I don't. Oh, okay. Well, no, he's, he's the greatest living uh, Bansuri player. You, you might have heard him on uh, any of those McLaughlin type things. And he, he said exactly the same thing. Yeah, that, oh, yeah? Yeah, you know, that, that I think it's actually an expression with Indian music that you, you have to learn one thing <laughs> before you can learn other things, you know. Well, you know yeah. So it's I, a, I, I, no, I, I, I agree with that. But also in today's, it's less likely that, yeah, I mean, when you're playing Jewish music, you're reflecting on sitting on Dave Karras' couch and, right. and and it's living it, right, you know, right. and, and you're sitting in the gaslight watching Bill Monroe and right. how he, his, his carriage when he walks in the room and all this stuff. So I imagine... Uh, trying to learn music only from data, <laughs> you know, as opposed to from from people. Yeah, or it's it's in styles there's you're already like two, three, four generations from a, a lot of the original sources and, and I see that um, a, a lot of the younger musicians are um, their styles are based on. I mean, first of all, it has to do with taste. So they like it. So I, you know, the, the, you know, you can't argue with people's tastes. People have just different different likes. But they're not really, um, not only aware of of a lot of the sources and, and things that the these, these contemporary musicians are based on, but many of them don't even care. And and um, you know, I remember speaking to some people and. and you know, who consider themselves, say, authority in a certain music field, and I said, well, uh, we're talking about someone who recorded a particular mel melody in the last few years, and, and they said it was based off a, a record made in the, you know, maybe uh, late 90s, early 90s, and I said, I said, well, that, you know, and they thought that was the first recording of this melody, and I said, no, I like the original record. What do you mean original record? And, and so people who were supposedly in the know didn't even know. You know this, that this particular song had been recorded, you know, 25 years earlier, and and that's really the version. That that version has all the juice, you know, right. and um, it's just an interpretation. Of, so it's it's um, you know, I see just just aesthetics change, styles change, and uh, you know, I'm sure like you know, a, a lot of the the older musicians in Indian music are are a little concerned about. What might what might be happening in the music now and, and, and where it's going to go? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, 
No, I mean, I, it seems like the answer is to create the styles of now <laughs> rather than, you know, re recreate something because you can only do such a good job of being somebody else. Well, that's, that's, that's true. That's really true. That's, that's really true. You, you know, you can't have another Coltrane, another, but there should be a way somehow in building, you know, unless it just has to do with time and place and, and um, you know, I mean, this, you know, just because music is new doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's, it's better or worse. It's just new, you know, so, so it doesn't, you know, um, it, you know, I see that there are certain times in music that, that there are musical explosions of innovation and power that, that um, you know, are almost unmatched. I mean, there's, there's still great rock and roll, but I mean, you know, who has the power of like, you know, those records of, you know, the, the Beatles back then, or, or, or Jimi Hendrix, you know, his early records, or the Rolling sure. Stones, or, you, know, like, you know, do you have that type of, like, you know, power and earth-shaking things happening and creativity in the music, and not just creativity, but emotional depth in the music. Is that happening now on the same scale? I don't know. I mean, I, I hear some pretty happening stuff. Yeah, there, um, there but is. It's, but it's also, you know, back then there was four, four television stations. So if something was really happening, yeah. every, everybody... New it become a cultural phenomenon. That's We're true. not going to have true. a cultural I never thought phenomenon. Of There's never going to be another Beatles. Ever. Right, right. You know. Um, wow. So what, what's what's uh, you, you got any uh, future plans? Anything we should be looking forward to? Or um, let's see. Um, other than just you know some uh, you know a little touring and, and some gigs, I might be doing some recording down in Nashville in, in the beginning of the summer. I'll see. You know, maybe. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly. Um, uh, might be a bit more traditional. I'm not sure. Also, I, I started working again with uh, with Zev Feldman, mm -hmm. and um, you know he's discovered a bunch of really, you know, amazing old manuscripts oh, going wow. back to the uh, you know early 19th century, and and so we're thinking of uh, you know we'd like to record some of this stuff. We actually did our first gig together a few months ago. It was great, and uh, so he's very busy teaching all over the world, and uh, you know I'm busy playing. So, but we're gonna, you know, we're gonna get start working more, you know, working together and and do recording some other types of Jewish stuff. I'd like to do some Hasidic records of you know different Hasidic groups, and uh, you know I'm constantly writing music. So it's, it seems like you're you managed to. Concentrate on the music and, and let the business come to you. Is that? Yeah, it's, I've I've never found a good manager, and um, anyone who managed me or booked me was never really very um, didn't know what to do. And because of um, you know, because of the different styles of music I play, you know, they, 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 what what is he playing? Is he playing bluegrass? Is he playing what's he playing? You know, and and. Uh, you know, also be you know because I'm I'm, I'm religious, you know, so I'm not working on Friday nights and most Saturday nights and, and you know. And, oh yeah, there's fifty percent of profits right there. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, if they want me, that you know, I could play on a Thursday or a Sunday, you know. So I mean, it's it's not so much of a deal, but um, you know, 
they can do it. So, but I just never was able, you know, it seems today what you really need is to have a, a machine behind you, you know, which, which has um, a record label that's tied into a... Um, PR company. Uh, yeah, a publicist who a publicist who's who's hooked into um, uh, you know the right people in the media and and um, and a booking agent who works with the publicists and you know, you need a whole a whole machine behind you yeah. and um, you know I I just you know I never. I, you know, I never got to that level business-wise. I was with Sony, you know, for a bit, but I, I never, I never really attracted that type of thing. Yeah. But you're fine. I'm fine. You know, I've, <laughs> I've, 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 you know, I've raised a family. I, you know, I have grandchildren. I, you know, it's, it's, you know, I'm getting by. Thank God, I've always gotten by. You know, and um, I'm doing exactly what I want to do. So it's, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not. I wouldn't want to. You know, I still enjoy, you know, getting in, you know, flying to somewhere in the Midwest and renting a car and traveling for a few days. But, I mean, you know, being more on, on the road for more than a week or 10 days, even that is, 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 is too much for me. I, I, I really wouldn't want to do it. I mean, part of it is it just takes away from writing music and practicing and developing, you know. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a, uh, a youngster anymore, you know. But, uh, you know, thank God I'm in good health and everything's moving along nicely. Yeah, so. well, you avoided a lot of the pitfalls that take take musicians. Out, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I'm, you know, it's, I, you know, I, I've, had, I've had a working band here in the city, the trio, for the last 20 years. I mean, there's almost nowhere do you find a working band around. You know, everyone's freelancing. These guys are freelancing also, but it's... We're we're constantly playing together though, so yeah. it's it's um, you know I, I feel like I, you know I've been given a lot of gifts, you know a lot of blessings, and you can't do everything, and uh, you know so I'm, yeah I'm, I'm I, I feel very blessed with with, with, with what I have, but I, I feel bad for the for the young musicians now, because it's it's just a when I came up, it was much easier to get a record deal and go somewhere, and now. I know if if if, uh, if you want to get on a record label, they want to see the last year of bookings and what your next year of bookings will be. You know who's your publicist. You know they, they, they you know it's all bottom dollar. People who I know who are successful, you know, all have sort of a machine behind them. Yeah. It's, 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 which means mo- you know money and contacts. <laughs> you know. Right. And uh, as speaking, um, I know I was speaking a friend of mine a, 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 a number of years ago. Um, uh, who's, you know, who's in the jazz world? You know, was a player and an educator, and um, Scott Lee, and uh, he he said that in the jazz world, he says there are two, three people on the top. And he says then it's a precipitous drop after that. Yeah. And and it has it has nothing to do with um, the, you know the quality of the musicians or whether these musicians are are. Um, you know, difficult people to work with, and no one wants to hire. You know, it's just it's just the business. You know, yeah. so. And the sad thing is that the, everybody thinks the other guy's making it because they, they see the social media. Oh wow, this guy he, he's, he's doing the thing, right? But like, yeah, no one's doing the thing. The, yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. There's there's a there's a um, 
uh, he's no longer alive, a guy named Marty Levitt, a, a, a clarinetist who came from a, a klezmer family. And he says, he says, you can either be um, an artist or a businessman. He says, you can't be both. So, you know, you'd have someone take care of the business, you know. So you can get someone to take care of the business, business who's effective, great. If, if you can't, then, you know, so you'd be an artist. You know? Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah, someone, someone told me the Yiddish expression. Uh, they said it in Yiddish, which sounds so funny. It was like, daughter, he's a musician, not a husband. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there was, you know, yeah, it's, musicians don't, don't always have the... the um, the greatest reputation, unfortunately. Yeah. You know. But the music lives on. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it can't it's, be stopped. And it's, it's the thing is, the music is just a, a great life source, life source for people. It, it means not just the musician, but it means so much to the people who hear the music, you know, the, 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 the fans of the music. It, it, it really play, it plays an important part in their life and helps to uplift them and... Um, you know, make them think, make them happy. You know, it's 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 an important thing. So all of us involved in the musical, um, you know, community on any end, even in the business end, it's, it's really doing a great service to people, to uh, helping people out with the music. All right. Well, thanks for all the Thank great you. music. Looking thanks. forward to hearing more. Thanks. All right.